When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, my name is Nathan Welcome Hansen, to the New Books Network. For New Books and Food, a member of the New Books Network. From Gail Borden's Meat Biscuit to John Harvey Kellogg's Peptogenic Foods for Race Betterment, and on to Fleischmann's Yeast as both technology of empire and imperfect tool for the global struggle with malnutrition, Lisa House offers Wonder Foods, the Science and Commerce of Nutrition, out from University of California Press 2022 brings together case studies of American and British foods developed and marketed in the century 1840 to 1940 as modern scientific miracles of nutritional efficiency, or of doing more, as Haushofer puts it. The book explores these foods in order to understand some of the dramatic transformations of science, commerce, and their relationship during that century, the effects that those changes had on how food was conceptualized and consumed, and also the ways in which these foods were entangled with destructive forces of imperialism, eugenics, racism, sexism, and more. Okay, uh, Dr. Haushofer, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining us. Uh, so as always, uh, I'm going to start off here by asking you how you became interested in uh, the project, the research that eventually turned into your book, Wonder Foods. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, so this book essentially emerged out of my dissertation research, uh, which I came to uh, from sort of two angles. One was um, as a, uh, a f- I was a physician before I came to the history of science and medicine. Um, and one of the things I noticed was that um, I learned very little about nutrition in medical school. And, uh, and yet, Nutrition seemed to be a very, very big interest for many patients who brought it up. Um, so one of the questions I had early on uh, when I started my PhD was how did nutrition become kind of pushed out of medicine so thoroughly and sort of pushed into almost entirely this this kind of commercial space, this unregulated um, space at the margins of medicine. Um, and I was also... Uh, very interested in the history of therapeutics from the beginning. So I was trained in a program um, with a lot of emphasis on the history of disease. And uh, there seemed to be a lot of um, literature out there on changing notions of disease, which I found fascinating. But there was a little less on the history of therapeutics. I got really interested in the history of surgery and organotherapy Um, And then came across uh, a product that was described as a medicinal food. And I was just intrigued by this term. And I was like, well, how does a food become medicinal? Um, So that piqued my interest in this intersection of um, pharmaceuticals and nutrition, food and medicine that ultimately led to this project. 
Well, I can say that uh, as a dilettante in the field of uh, history of science and technology, it's a little intimidating to be speaking with a, you know, with the other kind of doctor uh, about this, but um, I'm looking forward to it. So um, your book focuses on, as the title suggests, this series of wonder foods, um, exploring the ways that science and commerce especially are sort of implicated uh, in the changing relationships of people, mostly, mostly in uh, industrializing and industrialized uh, Britain and the U.S., uh, to food during the century from roughly 1840, 1940 or so. Um, and you also have some reflections about the long-term kind of downstream effects of those changes um, on our contemporary relationship with food, again, sort of mediated through both commerce and science. Um, so to start off, um, you know, thinking about the book, I want to ask you a couple of questions uh, related to your introduction and conclusion. And I think there are two questions that I'd like to get to. So the first one um, is, you write that, uh, and I want to quote here, the wonder foods discussed in this book promised above all to transgress norms. Now, I found this really an interesting way of conceptualizing what a wonder food is supposed to be. And I'd love it if you could unpack that for us. What is the transgression, right? Um, and in a sense, I guess that's the question of what is the wonder in wonder foods. Um, you seem to be arguing, among other things, that the foods, uh, these wonder foods are drawing their power from a kind of combination of scientific wonder, uh, ultra-modern, rational, efficient, wow kind of wonder, and also a sort of religious awe, a kind of mystical or mystifying wonder. Is that is that a fair reading of, of what you're getting at there? Absolutely. Yeah, it's really spot on. And I think both of these questions get to um, the core of the book and, sort of, and the choice of the term wonder foods in the first place, uh, which, as you probably noted, is not uh, an existing scientific or regulatory category, which I chose on purpose to avoid anachronism, but also to avoid reifying marketing categories like nutraceuticals or superfoods that are designed to give precisely this illusion that some foods are better or have been made better. Um, so instead, I borrowed this term wonder foods from the vernacular, you might say, um, on the one hand, I think because it's immediately understandable as a food that is somehow miraculous, goes beyond the ordinary, um, but it's also an analytical term for me on several levels. So the first is um, that, as you said, wonder foods are foods that transgress norms. They're foods that are meant to be more than the sort of existing base level of nutrition. Um, at one point, the running title for the book was Foods with Benefits. Um, so they shatter expectations of what foods are and can do. Um, and they you know, intervene in um, the existing imagination of the, what the limits of food are and sort of stretch them a little bit. Um, and there is a history, I argue in the book, of thinking foods as more than. And the ways in which we can imagine to be foods to be more than uh, change over time. Um, and uh, the uh, particular historical moment we are in, I argue in the book, started in the 19th century and is marked by what I call a nutritional growth mentality with sort of an emphasis on augmentation and extraction um, and um, that very much emerged because the nutrition sciences developed in such close proximity um, to the commercial, imperial and economic context in which 
they were formed. And then Wonder Foods also um, relates to the German word Wunder, meaning miracle. So this is the other meaning you um, alluded to. So Wonder Foods are also foods that sort of possess a miraculous, spectacular quality that in a way resists conventional ways of achieving truth. Um, so one characteristic of Wonder Foods is that they are able to straddle consumers' needs to understand and rationalize, to comprehend a product's precise mode of therapeutic action on their bodies on the one hand, but then also the need to be surprised, mystified, enchanted. Um, and this development I describe takes place during a period of growing secularization. But the wonder foods, I argue, contain remnants of magical, spiritual, and religious thinking. And they also, while they appeal to scientific knowledge, expert knowledge, also um, appeal to a kind of alternative, non-orthodox expertise a lot of the time. So um, one example is the use of fictional female characters um, to market books um, that have supposedly written entire cookbooks uh, to sell these products. Um, and then the term Wonder Foods is also inspired by Lorraine Daston and Katie Park's book Wonders and the Order of Nature, um, in which they argue that Wonders and Wondering were historically specific approaches to scientific inquiry and were used to somehow test the limits of what was possible. So wonder foods, for me, are also foods to wonder with. They're not just applications of pre-existing knowledge, but they're tools to think with, to wrestle with the really big nutritional questions, such as how does a food nourish? Where exactly does digestion take place? How can you organize the food supply of the world so that everybody is sufficiently nourished and so on? And then finally, I borrow from the history of pharmaceuticals, um, where um, Wonder Foods have um, um, their parallel in so-called wonder drugs and this idea of a magic bullet. Uh, so Wonder Foods also promise to intervene in complex societal and medical challenges by narrowing them down to easily fixable technical problems a lot of the time. So very much like 20th century pharmaceuticals. And they were often hailed as simple interventions for the entrenched ills of industrial societies and were meant to solve the big problems of empire, industrialization and rising inequality. Yeah, and I liked um, this choice of uh, wonder as as the key word in the way that you've explained it there, in part because uh, it's an interesting contrast to superfoods, um, which you know they have that same transgressive, more than you know literally super nature, but there's none of the the, the mystery and awe. It's supposed to be you know sort of precisely the opposite of that. That everything has been kind of scienced. You know, we, we completely understand everything and there's no wonder in it. It's super in a way that doesn't inspire in that sense. And so I thought that was a, a really, at least in the way that I was reading it, a sort of very useful um, distinction. Uh, it, the 
the other question that I wanted to ask you here before we jump into the chapters themselves um, is something that you alluded to a moment ago, which is this kind of exploitative nature of wonder foods. Um, and you spend a lot of time actually tying them to uh, imperialism, to eugenics, to white supremacism, um, to what I'm sort of reading as almost the class warfare, uh, the appropriation of colonized people's food resources, knowledge, also and, and, and the, the food knowledge uh, of women, um, whether actual or, as you point out, sort of fictionalized. And that's a kind of hefty set of charges to level against, you know, meat biscuits and Wonder Bread and breakfast cereals and so on and so forth. So I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about that before we jump into it. You know, how are these attempts to make so-called, you know, quote unquote, better foods implicated in all of these sort of evils of the modern world? Yeah, you're spot on. That is a hefty charge. And I admit that when I first began writing the book, I did not expect to do that. I thought I had found a rather light, interesting, somewhat outlandish, quirky topic that would keep me entertained throughout the PhD and beyond. Um, and I think in a way, my initial assumptions reflected real prejudices against food studies and food history as fields. So this idea that they're mainly fun, marginal, quirky topics. And instead, what I found was that in dealing with the history of nutrition and nutritional products, I was dealing with some of the most violent, most exploitative, most haunting developments that in a way have shaped our present world. And Wonder Foods um, by design are ways of consciously rethinking and redesigning how food should nourish. And that always included considerations of who could eat what, where, and how. So these are the kinds of questions that um, nutritional experts in the 19th and 20th centuries were asking. Um, and they're asking them in imperialist economically extractivist, patriarchal, and white supremacist societies. So the questions tend to be answered along racial, gendered, and classed lines. So uh, for example, with the meat biscuit, um, which is an American product that promised to concentrate an unusually large amount of just the nourishing principles of meat, um, you get questions about what exactly are the nourishing subcomponents of meat? How much of them are in meat? And can you possibly get them out and concentrate them and so maximize the nourishing value of meat? And since meat is quite expensive, that quickly leads to questions about where else you can find the most nourishing subcomponents in what other foods and in what other places. And in Britain, for example, where very little food is produced in the country itself by this time, there is a search for new and better sources of nourishment that's driven by a group of nutritional experts who are um, connected primarily through the Great Exhibition. Um, and that network extends all the way across the empire. Um, and it's fueled by the conviction that people living in these places don't know how to use these resources efficiently. They supposedly don't have this knowledge about the nourishing subcomponents of food, which is quite convenient if you're looking to extract resources from another country. And then by contrast, the ability to use nourishment efficiently and make other people's natural resources your own, these experts claim, is a sign of economic development and is precisely what makes one people superior 
to another. So these grand theories about nourishment tend to come with very exclusionary visions of who essentially deserves to eat and thrive. Yeah, um, it's uh, as somebody who just you know published an article about sporks. I can tell you that there are some there are some uh, light and fluffy topics to be explored in food studies. Uh, this is not one of them, despite the fact that you start off with Wonder Bread, uh, which is light and fluffy, of course, uh, as your first of many anecdotes. Um, but I want to jump into uh, the first section, which actually starts with the uh, meat biscuit, which you've already uh, begun to talk a little bit about. And the first section of the book is, I mean, this is sort of informally, I'm sectioning them off here. Uh, the first is chapter one, focused flesh, chapter two, the raw and the civilized. Um, and you, we start off with uh, Gail Borden's meat biscuit. And you're arguing here that the questions explored by nutrition science are, as you've just said, you know, framed in these imperialist um, contexts, right? So this is where you, where you begin to really make that argument. Um, and the meat biscuit is this sort of concentrated extract of all those nutritive powers of beef uh, baked with flour. Um, and as you put it in, in chapter one, quote, the meat biscuit was above all a technology of empire and its inventor, a willing participant in the U.S. Imperial Project. And I thought that was actually interesting because, of course, you know, there are people who are sort of unwilling or at least unaware uh, in, in, the, in the kind of sense um, that we can uh, assign responsibility or blame. Um, but, you know, here you have a willing participant in the U.S. Imperial Project. Um, and in that sense, uh, and again, quoting you, the biscuit marks a moment of transition between ways of knowing food and mechanisms for creating these more than foods. So how was uh, Borden's meat biscuit wrapped up in American empire? And, and how was it a transitional product uh, technologically and I guess epistemologically as well? So, what I mean when I say the meat biscuit was a technology of empire mm -hmm. is that it was very explicitly designed with the goal of furthering U.S. American imperial expansion. As you say, Gordon uh, Borden was uh, a willing participant. He was uh, delightfully explicit about um, his intentions and made them clear in the sources, which, of course, um, was a gift as a historian. Um, so Gail Borden, um, uh, together with his business partner, Ashbel Smith, um, is the inventor of the meat biscuit. And both of them were very much um, a part of the imperial project and were working sort of towards the goal of empire. So Borden was a surveyor and worked for the land grant office and Smith was a statesman and an outspoken white supremacist. And the context of this is that the U.S. has just acquired a huge stretch of land through the so-called Mexican session. So this includes present-day California, Nevada, Utah, Arizona, um, and parts of New, Me New Mexico, Colorado, and Wyoming. The problem, of course, was that much of this land was already inhabited by indigenous tribes, by Mexicans, by Spanish settlers. So a very ethnically and religiously diverse population. And so one important goal of empire was to settle this territory now with white settlers to facilitate U.S. expansion. And the military played a very important role in this. Um, they explored territories, they drew up maps, built roads, and also violently crushed any resistance from people already inhabiting this territory. And for that, they required a source of portable, durable, heat-resistant food. Um, so 
that's the context in which Borden and Smith begin experimenting with concentrating all kinds of food, including meat. Um, and of course, there is a, a long history of you know making foods portable and durable for for military expeditions. Um, but um, the idea here is um, to create a product that's specifically designed for the uh, North American imperial context. So a highly nourishing portable food product that is um, perfect for the temperatures in this region that can be carried easily across long distances. Um, and that's exactly how they market the biscuit. They market it explicitly to the military for their imperial purposes as a technology of empire. Um, so, for example, they claim that uh, the biscuit doesn't require as much cooking as existing preparations, and so there's less chance of a fire at night risking an imagined attack by indigenous tribes. And the military documents I looked at really confirmed that this resonated with them and that they were very interested in a portable, light, nutritious food source that would be perfectly suited um, to the imperial mission. Um, it's a transitional product um, in that, uh, so first of all, this is, as you know, the first chapter of the book. So the first chapter needs to do a lot of work. And one of the things I needed the chapter to do was to sketch approaches to uh nutrition and nutritional science in the period before my story begins and contrast them with the developments I wanted to describe. And the meat biscuit worked perfectly to do that because it still incorporates a kind of nutritional thinking that was focused around nourishment as an essential quality of a food. So um, in this thinking, a food was considered nourishing because it had a particular taste or a texture. Uh, so mostly sweet and doughy foods were considered nourishing. Um, and in this kind of thinking, if you want to somehow augment the nutritiousness of a food, uh, you have to do this by long cooking, which was essentially an imitation of an alchemical transformation through heat where a substance would become more and more reduced to its own essence. Uh, so the historian of science Emma Sperry has shown that in the 18th century, things like soups and broths and quintessences were essentially what she calls hypernourishing versions of food. So they have been sort of, um, their essence has sort of been brought out through this long process of transformation. They've been transformed into um essential versions of themselves. But this is entire foods as a whole being transformed. There is, so to speak, no loss in substance. And partly Borden's Meat Biscuit is still informed by this thinking because it's essentially the result of a long cooking meat soap. And the idea is to uh, then transform it back into soup through the addition of water. But at the same time, it's also part of a new way of asking questions about nourishment, um, where the question is no longer how does a food nourish, but which parts of food nourish and how much. And the meat biscuit is very much a part of this shift towards understanding nourishment as a function of its subcomponents. Um, and this idea that there are useful 
functional parts in food, uh, so the nutrients, and then there are parts that are just sort of bulk or waste. And if you know which parts nourish, you can sort of multiply those and get rid of the others. Um, so this is a very, very different way of thinking about how you can create foods that are more than foods. Uh, so this is what I mean with um, this historical specificity of um, wonder foods as more f more than foods. Yeah, it strikes me that it's a, a kind of um, anti-holistic uh, view um, of, of, of how food works. Um, but it also strikes me, you know, you were, you were talking about the, the uh, broth and soup, um, you know, holistic, yet somehow transformed and concentrated. You know, I, I, I think about the uh, uh, resurgence of bone broth, for example, as, you know, a way to think about, uh, you know, what makes a food nutritious or, or nutritive or, you know, whatever. And I think you know, we sort of go through these interesting cycles. And I also thought that was one of the strengths of the, um, the wonder foods paradigm is that it captures um, the advances in science and changes in epistemology, but yet the, the desire for something that is transcendent, right, in that sense, and the sort of the, the mystical nature of, of food um, as a transformative. Um, so the, the I want to I jump ahead to, to chapter two, because it's also part of the story of, of the meat, meat biscuit. And as you put it, you know, it's sort of um, designed specifically for the North American context, but it actually doesn't do as well as you might expect uh, in North America. And does quite a bit better in the British Empire. Um, and so, you know, your second chapter takes us there and sort of tells us the story of the, the failure turned success. And so I wonder if you could uh, uh, give us a little bit more about that. Sure, absolutely. Um, so one of the um, reasons why I chose this somewhat odd structure of focusing on the US and Britain um, was precisely also to in some ways point out the local specificity of some of these products and the meat biscuit in Britain has a very different uh, meaning and a very different life than it does in the U S in Britain. It becomes um, the center of an ongoing debate about how to stretch the food supply. So this is um, a time uh, of incredible transformation in Britain, um, which all results in some ways um, the reduction of, of food that's being produced in the country. So there is a, a concern about um, the food supply and there's a, a looking outward um, to uh, find new sources of nourishment, uh, new sources of supply. Um, and so there's a kind of um, teaming up of experts who are interested in this nexus of food empire um, and uh, the food supply and the food economy. And the meat biscuit for them means essentially a technology that can bring what they consider the wasted foods of the world closer to them. So they um, articulate this elaborate philosophy of nutrition, taste, and resource extraction, um, where the ability to make good use of natural resources and to have refined tastes that will um, lead you to eat a variety of foods, uh, which will guard you against famine, 
So there is a network of experts that are linked by this nexus of food, nutrition, empire, and the food supply and the food economy. And they come up with this elaborate philosophy of resource extraction, nutrition, and taste, which says that essentially if you are able to make good use of natural resources, you're on a higher um, level of development than less developed countries who are just sort of relying on whatever is there. Um, and you also develop more elaborate tastes as you move on uh, in the scale of development and you eat a, a greater variety of foods and you make use of other people's food resources and thereby you sort of guard against famine. And this philosophy Uh, for them was essentially doubled as a, um, a justification for resource extraction from other countries. And so there is a search for um, highly nourishing products that have previously been kind of wasted um, and not been made use of. And the meat biscuit is essentially a technology for them to bring these foods closer. It's a technology Uh, by which uh, the previously unused sources of cattle, for example, in Australia or in the United States, can be uh, brought back to Britain and uh, used as sources of nourishment there. So it's kind of uh, mapping this uh, economic philosophy of development onto um, a geographical map of the world. And this is why the meat biscuit resonates with them in a very different way, um, but is still awarded with prizes, for example, at the Great Exhibition, um, and is on the whole much more successful there. Yeah, so I thought this was interesting that you have um, a kind of globalization of um, what had previously been sort of uh, perishable uh, resources and sort of thinking about um, the the you know, ways to uh you know, as you, as you put it, sort of you know, bring together um, these sources of nutrition, uh, not wasting them um, from previously places that were unavailable. And, you know, it was, it's, it's a kind of drive toward, you know, efficiency, um, better resource management. And yet at the same time, it's also one that is entirely implicated in the project of, of empire. Um, yeah, so, so uh, this... You, you take us back to uh, the United States in chapters uh, three and four a little bit, uh, mostly in um, chapter four with uh, John Harvey Kellogg. Um, in chapter three, um, and, and so these two, two chapters together, also a section um, where you're looking at evolving understandings of digestion and how that uh, affects uh, the wonder foods industries. Um, You start with pro uh, you, you start with these project excuse me products enriched with digestive enzymes um, and marked as partially uh, pre digested which I thought was a really interesting way of thinking about food um, and then the the backlash that comes to that um, in the dietary ideologies and health foods of uh, famously problematic uh, gentleman named John Harvey Kellogg and his sanatorium um, so a key theme 
here is the sort of fascination with optimizing human digestion, right? So we have kind of both sides of, of the argument about how to do that. Um, and again, but it's, you know, it's also about um, optimizing resource usage, uh, which is, you know, continuing over from chapter two. Um, and fermentation uh, becomes a major a part of this. And in chapter three, you're looking at uh, this thing called beggar's food. Um, if I understand correctly, uh, this is basically enzymes added to warm milk to help pre-digest uh, starches and proteins. And it begins as a medical product to assist people with weak or weakened digestion, and then becomes one of these British consumer products enriched with digestive enzymes, you know, giving wonder and enthrallment and thrills uh, to consumers around the end of the 19th century. And you write that uh, by outsourcing digestive labor, Banger's food could do the work that unproductive digestive systems could not. Uh, this is a, really a, a striking way to think about food. And I, I just... I kept, I kept just, yeah, you know, I have that sort of shake my head kind of feeling like I don't know what to do with this. Um, how, how does this transformation fit into the overall picture of um, particularly imperialism, modern technology and ideology and rationalization that you're painting in the book? So this incredible interest in digestion in general and digestives, digestive enzymes in particular um, in this time in the second half of the 19th century is essentially an extension of these previous concerns um, that I discuss in, in chapters one and two about the food supply and about locating and maximizing nourishment in an imperial context, except that the focus is no longer on increasing the food supply and the amount of nourishment, but on optimizing the uptake of nourishment in individuals through individual digestive systems. So essentially, um, it's a focus uh, from uh, a shift in focus from food production to food consumption. And food digestion is seen as a part of that. So basically, the idea is that uh, now that research on digestive ferments or digestive enzymes, as we would call them today, has cracked the secret of digestion, um, you can use digestive enzymes to substitute and optimize individual digestive systems. But you can also add them to foods um, and basically pre-digest them, pre-digest them. And Benga's food is one of many such products. And the imagined target population for these interventions are poor people. Um, and there is a wider movement at the time that scrutinizes poor people's food choices and their drinking and eating habits and their lifestyle in general. And all of this happens in a context where people are increasingly concerned with the health and efficiency, as you say, of the workforce. And so Banger's food and similar products become not just tools to optimize digestive uptake, but to reduce the burden of sickness more generally, um, because they supposedly outsource the work that digestion would take up in the body. So rather than using your own digestive organs to digest gruel, you pour gruel into a bowl and then you add digestive enzymes and then you eat this pre-digested uh, food so there is less energy expended on digestion and more energy left to fight off other sicknesses. And this is really important in a context um, where, for example, the uh, economic losses through sickness um, 
in work are increasingly quantified and um, are gaining attention. And so you can see how uh, racialized and, and classed ideas about food are intertwined in digestion. Yeah, you know, I in uh, in reading the book and preparing for the interview, I uh, was looking through some old newspapers to see if I could find ads for Banger's food. Uh, I thought it would just just sort of be interesting. And I should tell you, I found a 1913 ad from the aptly named newspaper, The Daily Colonist, um, and I just thought, oh yeah, this is this is what the book is all about, right? Uh, it's it's quite it's quite a thing. I'll share it with you later, but. Um, uh, Amazing. Yeah, in, in chapter four, um, we return uh, back to the U.S. to again have the sort of uh, backlash to this kind of outsourcing of digestion. Um, you start the chapter with this this wonderful little bit here: "Quote a doctor, a stenographer, an interpreter, and none sat on a horse-drawn cart." Um, this is, by the way, uh, you know, very much the uh, the overall very enjoyable uh, style of of the um, of the book, uh, but. Uh, you know, I, I found myself wishing this was the beginning of a joke uh, instead of a story about John Har- Harvey Kellogg, uh, who appropriates uh, indigenous knowledge in the project of quote unquote race betterment, uh, mixing eugenics and euthenics to address anxieties about the decline of the so-called white race in the late 19th century. Um, and, and of course, you know, he's taking this pilfered knowledge first um, into his own pre-digested foods, but then has this rebellion against that idea of outsourcing digestion and he develops uh, peptogenic foods, uh, a, a, a move that you describe as, quote, rooted in a growing critique of predigestion that reflected eugenic concerns with welfare and dependence, and also a kind of romantic primitivism, I guess. Um, so what does that all mean? And how does this fit? Um, how, how does so Kellogg's story fit into the overall um, health food and race politics and wonder foods narrative that you're trying to tell us? <laughs> Yeah, you're so right. If only it was a joke. Um, I think this is, you know, probably the best example of um, my initial assumption that I would, you know, find a, a light, amusing story. And I think John Harvey Kellogg often has been sort of described um, in that way as a kind of, you know, eccentric, ridiculous, laughable character. Um, but it's actually a pretty harrowing story. And Kellogg, uh, as we know, was an ardent eugenicist. And uh, he organized conferences at his sanitarium in Battle Creek, where he invited basically the who is who of the eugenic movement, like all the big names. And at the same time, his livelihood was based on improving people's way of life, their diet, exercise, their sleep, and so on, which was somewhat at odds with hardline eugenic thought, because the idea was uh, interventions like this would interfere too much with the natural struggle of the fittest and thereby weaken the white race. So Kellogg's answer to that is what he calls race betterment. So basically a mixture of eugenics and euthenics. So this idea that you can improve the hereditary makeup of a race by restoring what he thought was the natural way of life of the U.S., um, continent. And to find the natural way of life, he basically studied and stereotyped native peoples because he thought of them as unspoiled by civilization and living in a way that was ideal to the American continent. And so the first products he creates are essentially 
natural versions of artificially digested foods that are very much inspired by um, and in some cases even appropriated from the foods of native tribes. Um, but more and more any kind of pre-digested food, so even the supposedly natural versions that are much more popular on the American market, uh, falls out of favor. Partly because um, every pharmaceutical company and every meat packer in the U.S. now makes preparations of digestive enzymes from animal offal, um, but also because of this growing eugenic sentiment that meddling too much with disease and poverty will lead to degeneration. And in this context, predigested foods are regarded with suspicion because they are seen as means of merely substituting the body's natural digestive enzymes. Um, and the concern is that that will ultimately unteach the stomach to do its own work. So it's basically a means of uh, enabling gluttony. So pre-digested foods become the focus of a larger critique of consumer society and the advances of civilization and this fear of degeneration. And peptogenic foods are Kellogg's response to that. So uh, peptogenic foods are uh, foods that don't contain digestive enzymes. They are not digestive enzymes. They don't substitute them, but they supposedly stimulate and incentivize the body to produce its own digestive enzymes. Um, so this is an imagined mechanism of product action that directly reflects this concern with um, a society where things have become too easy, um, where you don't have to do uh, digestive work anymore, essentially. But if you merely incentivize the body to do its own work, that's not so bad. So you see the kind of eugenic economic thinking of the time that's captured in this mechanism. And at the same time, I think it's a mechanism that's uh, still pretty recognizable to us today. Yeah, I, I was thinking, you know, Kellogg is very much wrapped up in um, the sort of noble savage thinking that happens whenever you feel like, you know, the, the your your race or civilization or whatever it is, is in decline. You look to somewhere else, uh, usually some sort of supposedly primitive or, uh, you know, unspoiled uh, peoples or whatever, uh, and try to, you know, as you say, appropriate uh, that knowledge in order to flip the tables, Right. Um, it's, uh, yeah, it, it's, it's very insidious and there's, but there's also, you know, I, I was, I, I have a, a little bit of sympathy to the idea of the peptogenic foods in the sense that there is, um, if I recall, Kellogg was also, uh, somebody who advocated, for example, for, you know, exercise, um, he was quite a, you know, uh, quite an advocate for that. And there's a kind of, well, like you need to exercise the whole body, not just your muscles. You need to exercise your digestive tract. And it's hard to see that as not making, you know, some sense. Um, and uh, it's, it's, it's just unfortunate that it's wrapped up in everything else that it's wrapped up in. Um, yeah. So yeah, it's pretty compelling. I, I remember when I gave a talk about this once, there was one member in the audience who um, was really enthusiastic about um, digestive enzymes and, and sort of intervening in digestion wanted to um, basically ask about how can we bring these foods back. So I, I do think that idea is um, pretty compelling and yeah, has, has lasted 
quite a while. Right. And, and yeah, that, that's, that's a good point that, you know, sort of both sides of, of this are quite compelling in their own ways, right? Yeah, interesting. Um, so I want to turn to the last section of the book, uh, where here, you know, sort of chapter five is kind of a section with two parts in, and of, in, in itself. Um, and this is the brewer, the baker, and the health food maker. Um, so each, so there's two parts of the chapter, uh, one examining, uh, each, each of which examines an aspect of uh, uses of yeast. Uh, the first part, uh, you're looking at the 1920s, 30s-ish uh, yeast for health campaign, uh, advertising uh, Fleischmann's yeast as a wonder food, uh, which is actually something I had come across in my own research but never tackled at all. So I was really glad to be able to uh, outsource that work to you. You've, you're my <laughs> digestive enzyme, I guess. Um, in the second part of this chapter, uh, you turn to the invention of quote-unquote food yeast in the British Empire, and then the ways that this intersects with humanitarian efforts, uh, um, to alleviate malnutrition around the world. I want to take a look, though, of course, um, at yeast for health first. And, and as you show in the chapter, I mean, the innovation here is not scientific so much as it is something quite different, right? Yeah, that's absolutely right. Uh, so in the arc of the book, uh, this is the chapter that tries to capture what I see as the divergence um, into two major trajectories of wonder foods in the 20th century. So on the one hand, wonder foods are increasingly high-end consumer products for mostly affluent, mostly healthy people. And on the other hand, they become tools of intervention in global health. Um, so the yeast for health story gets at the first development, and it marks a moment in the course of the book where the marketing of these products has become increasingly specialized and professionalized. And so the focus shifts a little bit from innovation in the nutrition sciences to innovation in the marketing techniques of these products. And with that comes a change in the relationship between science and commerce in the realm of nutrition. And what I mean by that is that Fleischmann's yeast is not based on a central nutritional scientific question or an important development in the nutrition sciences, which a lot of the other products in the book are. Um, uh, so the meat biscuit is closely tied to, you know, the scientific question of um, the nature of nutritional constituents and essentially the invention of food groups and macronutrients and Benga's food and Kellogg's health foods are closely linked to digestive enzymes. And um, it has been suggested before that Fleischmann's yeast was essentially an outgrowth of the vitamin craze of the early 20th century. And, you know, no doubt vitamins certainly played a role. Um, but what I'm trying to show in the chapter is that the success of um, the Yeast for Health campaign was, I think, not just the result of the power of vitamins, but really came with fundamental changes in marketing. So before becoming yeast for health, Fleischmann's yeast already had a long history of drawing on nutritional scientific developments for its marketing, um, and they change all the time. So in the late 19th century, there is a lot of emphasis on the wholesomeness and digestibility of the bread that is baked with Fleischmann's yeast. And then in the early 20th century, so after the passing of the Pure Food and Drug Act in 1906, the language of purity appears in advertisements and um, quotes from Harvey Washington Wiley pop up, um, the, the Pure Foods Crusader and so on. And then um, there is a decline in home baking during this time as people 
move more and more into cities and small apartments and they don't have ovens and they eat outside the home more and more and buy more store-bought bread. And so the Fleischmann company is essentially in search for new markets and they once again focus on health benefits, but this time the health benefits of the yeast cake itself. And the marketing firm that is charged with growing the yeast market um, um they search the existing medical literature for any empiric uses of yeast in diseases and they find a number of things in somewhat obscure journals. Um, so, for example, it's used in skin conditions, constipation and as a protein supplement. And they also send yeast cubes to a physiological chemist, a name called Philip Hoke, who sets out to verify some of these empirical claims in a, another rather poor study. But that becomes the basis for the launch of the Yeast for Health campaign. And the advertisements in this period are still very much drawing on uh, scientific authority. And they quote the research by Hoke and they emphasize that basically all of this is still the domain of science and the physician. And this is somewhat successful as a campaign, but at some point yeast sales grind to a halt. And this is the moment where you see um, the focus shift away from the medical and scientific authority and towards the consumer and the marketing strategy. So the J. Walter Thompson Company, which is the advertising firm that's in charge of Yeast for Health, launches a series of essay contests in order to how they put it, make the buyer sell the product to himself. Um, so these essay contests essentially ask users of Fleischmann's yeast to write about how they use the product, in which situations, for which conditions. And then the company analyzes the essays and uses what the consumers have said to sort of broaden the spectrum of indications for yeast and make the uh, conditions fit the marketing rather than the other way around. So they essentially um, invent a new way of looking at constipation that fits the product. And I think this is really what made the campaign successful and also allowed the company to circumvent all sorts of um, regulation and scrutiny on the basis of um, you know, having made some kind of medical claims um, for their product. So in some ways, I think what you can see in Fleischmann's yeast is not just another instance where a product is marketed through the power of nutrition science, but it's precisely the historical moment where advertisers figure out strategies to circumvent and even oppose scientific expertise and encourage a sort of alternative consumer expertise. And I guess that's something that we're also still wrestling with today. And that's also still a critical feature of many wonder foods. Yeah, I thought this was uh, really fascinating because for me, it also ties together some of the um, innovations in public relations, PR, uh, what was at the time uh, rather less disingenuously called propaganda. Um, you know, thinking of, uh, I, I can never remember the company that advertised for Fleischmann's, but also Edward Bernays and sort of these people who were uh, working at that time. Um, and then you also have, uh, in the same way that Kellogg is very concerned with, you know, race decline uh, in the late 
19th century, you have in the early 20th century, the uh, the British getting very concerned after the Boer War uh, that, you know, so many recruits are unfit for duty because they're, you know, undernourished. And that must be the fault of um these uh, new white loaves being produced in industrial ovens and people aren't baking these hearty, wholesome, nutritious breads. And so you get, you know, in the teens, I forget what the exact year is, but the standard bread campaign, right? Which is, again, the sort of same kind of um, innovation of, hey, let's get people to have a contest to sort of virtue signal with, you know, peasant breads and that sort of thing in order to create. And so it's just like, it's all, it all comes together in a really fascinating way um, in this first half of the chapter with, you know, what, 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 what in so many ways is very innocuous, right, as a product yeast. I mean, it's so much part of a background of everything we do. Um, it's just kind of fascinating that becomes the product that you're able to do that case study through. Um, in the second part of the chapter, um, you take a, a you, you take a little bit of a turn here to wrestle with the tensions between uh, the development of food yeast as really as a technology of imperialism, and on the other hand, its use by international organizations such as the LNHO, the League of Nations Health Organization, um, to combat nutrition, mal, excuse me, malnutrition on the one hand, um, and the tendency that it embodied uh, to reduce the problem of combating hunger to just a narrowly technical one. Right? In other words, we need to have some sort of technical innovation rather than to fix the problems themselves, right? We need to fix the, the underlying conditions that have created the problems. Um, so yeah, tell, tell us about uh, you know, how yeast gets, in that sense, um, reinterpreted uh, in this context. Right. Uh, so this is the other major trajectory of yeast. Um, it's used as so-called food yeast in the British imperial context, but then also in the early history of international health. So um, the food yeast story is connected to a crisis of the British Empire in the interwar period where there is growing critique of imperial mismanagement, the growing cost of empire, and also the sugar industry is in decline and markets for sugar have shrunk. And the reaction to that is the Colonial Development and Welfare Act, which is supposed to kind of give a boost um, to the empire. And that includes the establishment of the Colonial Products Research Council that tries to find new uses for the byproducts of sugar, notably molasses. And food yeast is one such product that can be grown from molasses. And at this point, um, there's already been quite a bit of research into yeast as a possible source of concentrated nourishment and protein. But what happens in this imperial context is that food yeast is developed as a particularly cheap and quick-to-produce pr- quick yeast And it's then mass-produced in a number of colonies, including Jamaica and India. Um, Now, at the same time, this is all happening. There is also a growing emphasis on nutrition in the field of international health. So especially um, the LNHO that you mentioned and also the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United States. And these organizations see nutrition as a major focus of international health and a source of inequality between nations and they're gathering data on the composition and nutrient content of diets worldwide. And this data suggests that there are considerable gaps in nutrition between colonial and formerly colonial nations and the rest of the world. Um, So all of these developments come together to produce 
a joint focus on what they call colonial man- malnutrition and on food yeast as a possible solution to this problem. Um, and unfortunately, this also entails unethical experimentation with yeast on human subjects in colonial nations. So food yeast is tried in prisons, lunatic asylums, orphanages, schools, and in a leper settlement in India, Trinidad, and Nigeria. Um, And these experiments are conducted often with no consent or even against the express wish of trial subjects. So this is, um, I guess, another instance where you see the continuities between colonial medicine and international health. And at the same time, it's the beginning of a lasting trend in global health um, to um, approach nutrition, which of course is a very complex um, social and economic issue um, uh, through these kind of technical fixes. And um, whereas at the stage of investigation at the stage of data gathering um, the problem is usually still conceived quite broadly when it comes to the stage of the solution it's sort of this uh, narrowing down and um, as much as this is rooted in this particular historical moment that was this transition period between um, colonial medicine and um, international health I think it is still um, a feature of many global health approaches to nutrition, even today. Well, unfortunately, as so often happens, uh, you end you end a talk about history with something that's not particularly uplifting. Uh, but we have sort of reached uh, the end of the book, and I wanted to um, thank you for uh, joining us uh, to talk about it, um, and also ask you uh, what it is that you're up to now, now that the book is out. I am uh, researching a new project on the history of the symptom and symptomatic treatments in modern biomedicine. So I'm continuing this interest in therapeutics um, and looking at essentially what um, happened to the symptom and uh, to symptomatic treatments in in modern biomedicine and um, uh you know, it's in in a way it comes out of um, the this project, um, which among other things led me to uh, medication for uh, digestion, things like laxatives, um, which very much develop in this this early eugenic context. Um, but um, then um, throughout the twentieth century, um, there is. Um, kind of this illusion in medicine that essentially we've moved on to drugs that can, you know, pretty much pin down um, the the specific cause of a disease and, and target that specifically and sort of remove, you know, remove the cause. So like antibi- antibiotics, for example. And, you know, for my clinical time, I know that this is just not the case in reality and that very few treatments in reality have lived up to this expectation. Um, so I'm interested in this in this tension um, and um, looking at uh, symptomatic treatments, uh, but also the, you know, what happened to the symptom in general in in modern medicine. Well, that's very cool, and uh, I'm I'm hoping I'll get a chance to talk to you about that when uh, that project comes to fruition. Uh, but for today, uh, thanks again for taking the time to talk with us, and uh, take care. Thank you so much.